Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We yeah. do have a lot of innovation. We do have good tech companies. We're great in the creative arts. We win a swag I, of Academy Awards. I disagree awards. with you on that. We no? used to. We used to. But we... what about Hugh Jackman? Our Hugh. When was the last time Our he won? Hugh when was still the last time going, still he won going. Something. He's got his Viper hands on. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. All right, to shake up the snow cone a little, this episode sees me being interviewed by the very erudite, whip-sharp, contrarian Josh Sheps. Have you come across Josh yet? He's a comedian, the host of Afternoons on ABC Radio Sydney, and he has fronted like stacks, dozens of TV shows, podcasts and radio shows here and in the US where he was based for 10 years. You might have caught him hosting HuffPost Live or as a regular on NBC's Today Show. Or you might have heard him on the world's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, where he was brought on as a regular guest for many years. His most recent appearance on Joe Rogan in 2022 made headlines around the world as Josh, quote unquote, annihilated Joe Rogan during a rambling and very frustrating chat about vaccines. I recommend you go hunt that one down. He now hosts his award-winning podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, where he goes straight for the jugular on a bunch of dangerous ideas, the kind of ideas we all tend to skirt around or talk about in private circles, usually prefaced with, you know, I could probably only tell you this, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I was invited on as a guest and basically we have the kind of good faith but robust wrestle with real stuff that frankly I crave. This is a longer form chat, longer than my normal podcast, but that's the way that Josh rolls. And I thought I'd share it here on Wild because some of the ideas we talk about tie in with many of the themes that you and I discuss here. We reference a few things here that maybe some overseas listeners or even listeners outside of Sydney might not know about. Q&A is a progressive current affairs debate program on Australian television. 
I mentioned W Wharf, which is a sort of restaurant precinct in Sydney where, well, the right-wing elite tend to go and be seen and network, particularly on Friday afternoons, if that should interest any of you. I also reference Lech Blaine's ideas on class and Will McCaskill's theory on long-termism, and I've put my interviews with both of these wonderful people in the show notes. Also, I reference a Harvard study, the details of which my brain could not pull from the depths of my hippocampus on the day, but it's actually a 2019 study that found that Australia, paradoxically, was one of the richest nations in the world, but also the least innovative. We now rank 93rd in innovation, dropping from 57th only two decades ago and lagging well behind Kazakhstan and Uganda and only just ahead of Pakistan and Mali, while simultaneously ranking as the eighth richest country in the world. Anyway, I'm glad I got the details roughly right in my chat with Josh because he pins me down on the point, as he does on all the points that we chat about, from Cannonau wine to dating app observations to the perils of looking like you could be straight from an Amy commercial. Anyway, over to you, Josh. Sarah Wilson, look, she is the author, the founder of an entire movement The book is called I Quit Sugar, but you might remember the I Quit Sugar movement, which became a sort of a global phenomenon, oh, about a decade ago, and all of a sudden everybody was not, was off sugar for a while. Sarah is the mastermind behind that trend, and yet I didn't really want to talk to her about sugar or nutrition. I wanted to talk to her about herself, about communication, about what is wrong with men and what the expectations are on women and what holds Australia back and whether I agree with any of her interpretations about any of those things. And most importantly, how we can understand each other better. Sarah is wonderful, beautiful, thoughtful, honest, raw, motivated, upfront about the fact that she suffers from anxiety. She's a multi-New York Times bestselling author. She's an Amazon bestselling author. She's a podcaster. You should listen to her podcast, which is called Wild by Sarah Wilson. And she has interviews with big guests. I mean, guests that even make this show's roster blush. She was also a television presenter, a television host. She hosted uh, MasterChef in Australia, and she was an editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. So she's a journalist. She's one of these all-around people who some people find it hard to peg. But as a result, I quite like the cut of those people's jib because they've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies and a lot of interesting ideas about things. You had dark chocolate for breakfast. Yeah. How did that come about? I always eat dark chocolate for breakfast. I eat 90% dark chocolate, about three squares every morning. Sugar-free? Almost. Very small amounts of it. It's a bit bitter, isn't it? 90% dark? Not for me. No? I can't handle anything sweeter than that. Right. Yeah, I love it. Can you have milk chocolate without sugar? Uh, If it's sweetened with either maltitol or stevia, generally. But why would you? I'm in it for the cocoa hit. Right. And the fat. Right. I'm in it for the sugar. Mmm. All right, that's fine. And the milk. <laughs> go, go and the milk fat. Yeah. Like yeah. if you have one of those like red lint Swiss milk yes, chocolates, the, mm-hmm. very, very the milky. Either the ball or they also come in a tray, a tray breakaway yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, melt in your mouth, the deliciousness, creamy, fatty, sweetie, uh, straight from a cow's udder. 
like a like a heavenly direct, cow, like a heavenly sugar cow has just <laughs> has just come in your mouth, and it's just the most beautiful thing. That's not for you. It's not for me. No, you want your harsh. I could get sexual and try to sell in ninety percent linked chocolate. I mean, look, it's not harsh. It's quite sublime. I find the cacao bitterly sublime. Yeah, no, a stringent, powerful, sort of straight to the spinal cord, you know, kind of injection of energy and vitality. It's a little bit like, I mean, red wine is also one of my favourite substances as Mm. well. I like a really big, strong, like there's a Cananao wine. Oh, I can't believe you said Cananao. That was my go-to. It's such a weird, obscure, like, wine You need a knife and fork, don't you, to to drink it. Yeah, in the States when I was living in New York, I discovered a Cananao. A Cananao is a Sardinian wine, which is just Grenache, I think, or is it, uh, I think it's just the same grape as something else that we know. but it's the unique thing about it is it's about 14 to 15% mm. alcohol. So Probably explains my affection for it. Me too. Yeah. I like to stick to a glass but of it's wine. Like an old, it's an old, if people know an old vine Grenache, I think that's what it is. I think yeah. the grape is the Grenache, but they call it Cananao because they're Sardinian and they're silly and they call things different names uh, instead of proper English words like good people do. And the Cananao has this particular kind of funky, heavy It does. It's alcoholic. Quite, and, and also a little bit barnyardy. But I first came across it from work, doing work with the Blue Zones, the National Geographic Project that looks into longevity. Yeah. So I did work with them in... Of course. Um, and, can, and Sardinia is one of those, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes, that's right. The other, I went to Ikaria in Greece for three months and then I went there and was looking at some sort of food elements to it all. But the common thing that all the Blue Zones have is, apart from Okinawa, is that they drink red wine. Mm. Um, so it is one of the former... They don't drink as much red wine as I was drinking. No. Wine. I don't drink anymore. They do so, the moderation. Because yeah. I felt like maybe yeah, maybe there was a little bit of self-rationalisation going on mm. for me about, uh, you know, red wine's good for you and if a glass of red wine is good for you, how good would a bottle have out. to be? <laughs> exactly, that's <laughs> right. This bottle is five times better for me mm. than a glass. Have you ever had problems with drink, the amount you drink? Or? No. I've got an autoimmune disease, which means I can't technically drink all that much. I'll get very unwell. But one glass I actually found find to be very helpful in bringing down my inflammation. So mm. I drink a glass, two glasses every single night, probably six nights a week I would drink right. one or two glasses. Maximum the other two. night you drink 70 glasses of wine <laughs> and you wake up. No, I would not be here talking to you. I would have long died. Right. But I find I can do it. But I actually started out my career in journalism, little known fact, as a wine writer. Right. Mm. Okay. So I've always had an interest in it. And drinking one glass of wine you don't find just annoying? No. Just irritating? I get bored by the taste of it if I have more than a glass and a half. Yeah, I think the taste is where you're going wrong. It's really not about the taste. I mean, it's about the buzz, isn't it? Yeah. It's about the buzz and the taste. I get the right amount of buzz Uh and then it it goes downhill if I have over two glasses. You just got to push through. Uh, yeah, I two can't. glasses, you go down. No, I vomit. But by the fifth, you're feeling great. Yeah, no, no, I don't get there, you oh, see. Right. I either pass out or vomit. Yeah, so right. it's just a moot point it's and tricky. a waste of, you know. Waste of money. Waste of sweat Waste of, of good vomit. Yeah, exactly, that's right. <laughs> of bile. Yeah, see, I've always, I, I have always felt that one glass of wine just gets you to the point at which I'm like, well, now we're just beginning and if I'm going to stop, I'd rather just not have started. You know, sort of yeah. like starting to have sex and then just pulling 
I've gone, no, actually, we're not going to do this. Well, I'd rather just not do it at all. I'd rather have been going on a roller coaster this whole time. We could actually establish our there are two types of people in this world theory, yeah. I think, from, from this conversation. Okay. I'm not great at moderation in a lot of things. However, the more dominant theory that I work to is that if I see a wet paint do not touch sign, I just have to go there. So I can't diet. I can't do full restriction because if somebody tells me not to do something, I just want to do its opposite. So if I allow myself the one glass, I'm very content with that. I feel like I'm almost gamifying the system. I'm owning the system. And I do that with a bunch of things. So when I ran the I Quit Sugar program, I was never telling people not to quit sugar. It's sort of the detail is in the name of it, right? It's I Quit Sugar. I gave it a go. You can try it too if, if you want your own person. And I can share the information on how to do it, the science. I went down the rabbit holes for you because that's what I do. And so here you go, over to you, you're an adult. Mm. So I've always operated that way. And with sugar as well, I still eat a bit of sugar. There's sugar in that 90% chocolate. If there's a birthday cake going around, I'll eat it. And actually I can be excessive. And I've just got to have techniques that pull me in that allow me to have a little bit of it and not miss out. The and listener be can't one of see it now, people. but you actually have a trough of what pure white sugar that you're <laughs> devouring every time I speak, like a horse with an oat bag. Uh, it's quite unpleasant, but the listener should just know. The one thing that you said earlier is very interesting, Sarah, which I sort of feel is relevant the way that I think about myself as well, which is you said that you're a bit hard to classify. I mean, part of my whole kind of mission in media life is to encourage people to be able to talk to each other and and think about each other in ways that transcend our petty self-classifications and our tribal identities and the things that we sort of, the lazy ways that we can engage in groupthink and then sort of, you know, tribalism, for want of a better word. Where do you sit if you're not classifiable? Well, somewhat of an outlier, especially as a woman in her late 40s, you know. By now I should have fit into a little slot and I should be heading to a new slot marked entirely redundant and invisible, you know, Um, and I've got no intention of doing that. But yeah, there's a certain trodden, well-trodden path um, that I should have walked as a woman, you know, sort of looking the way I look and all of this kind of thing. So yeah, and especially given my media background. So I think the the context of that conversation was that very mainstream commercial media find me a little bit controversial and out there. You know, I speak out on things that sort of seem quite renegade. I mean, when I first came out and, you know, talked about quitting sugar 12, 13 years ago, I was accused, you know, in headlines around the world of, was it removing a food group? Mm. Now, I didn't know sugar was a food group, but (laughs) that was the the sin I was accused of. Um, So there was a lot of controversy. And then, of course, it became, you know, just obvious. Yeah, you don't eat that much sugar. We should all be, you know, blah, blah, blah. Who was that woman again who suggested it in the first place? Oh, she's well gone. Right. You know, she's in her late 40s now. (laughs) I've forgotten about her. So I suppose, yeah, I've always come out and said those things. You know, I, I look mainstream. I look like I should be on an Amy ad, you know. That's what I've always looked like. You put a bit of makeup and somebody does mm. my hair and you can roll me out. Right. And I For a in, home insurance yeah, commercial. Yeah, a morning television program yep. or whatever. But then, you know, sort of I suppose more intellectual media has associated me with that. I also talk about quite complex ideas, I suppose, yet I have always done my work, written my books, geared a lot of my work at, you know, everyday people, 
You know, people who shop at, you know, Woolworths and out in the suburbs and are getting on with their lives. So I quite love doing the dance between categories mm. and, and not setting my feet in concrete somewhere. Do you remember the pushback that Michelle Obama got when she tried to create a White House garden uh, and yes. uh, to change the uh, curriculum of what ch- children, uh, uh, you know, eat in school yeah. lunches in America? I mean, all of a sudden she was being, she was like a neo-Nazi for trying to mm-hmm. deprive America. Like, I think Sarah Palin went on a whole national tour saying that Michelle Obama was trying to steal children's cookies and not let them have cookies anymore because she wanted them to eat less sugar, more fruit and to move. Do you find that there's that this is a subject that is particularly susceptible to right-wing bullshit? One of many. One I of mean, many. I mean, this is a while ago now. I think right-wing bullshit kind of extremist, anti-woke, wokists have moved on to other topics now. I think, though, as women, like, I think about it, and it's particularly in this country, and I've been railing and ranting about this a little. There's nothing more annoying than somebody who's just returned from overseas with a Gretchen tan talking about how frustrated they are with, you know, Australian culture and and dialogue and behaviour. So please go ahead. Yeah, well, this is the how The tan I, looks great, by the way. <laughs> I've, I'm always a kind of a deep shade of jaundice, no matter what, <laughs> where I've been. It's just sort of my skin colour. It's not true. No, it's not true. You look tanned. Yeah, I think I just look this colour all the time. Okay. I think that Australia is in a very interesting spot. We, of course, have had a change in leadership, which is more progressive and at least open to more nuanced discussion and hearing from different voices, and it's, it's all looking quite nice. There is a, I think, a base mentality here which really does go back to colonial times. And I've interviewed various people on my podcast. Lech Blaine talks about this quite well, the whole history of the bloke and the larrikin and the she'll be right, double shuckers, you know, like don't take life too seriously, um, that kind of thing. That is so pervasive and we're sort of proud of it. You know, we used to, the whole Paul Hogan meme, you know, from the 1980s where it was something we really, we wore as a badge of honour and it worked for us um, to a certain extent while we were still innovative, you know, while we were still doing great stuff. The 80s and the 90s produced incredible music, incredible athletes, incredible innovation on the world stage. And what's happened in the last 30 years, we have had uninterrupted economic growth. And we are the only OECD country that has experienced that. And so I sort of equate it to the sort of the overweight dude on the couch, right, who has just got fat on his own luck. And in our case, mining booms, repeated mining booms, and before that, you know, sheep. And they're sitting there with the remote control. They don't have to actually get up and change a station. They've got their Twitter and that they can opine from. They can order in Uber Eats. You know what? They don't even have to get up to the door. The person comes in like on the ads and delivers it to their coffee table. And so there's this flaccidity and I call it acedia, which is that a Greek term for this sort of listless slothfulness, you know, that comes about when things have just got way too comfortable. And that's Australia, coupled, of course, with the larrikin motif, you know, that we just hang on to, which is about basically being an easygoing white bloke. You know, it, it, it's, it's really dangerous, it's really backward, and it's holding us back as a nation. I would say that as a, anybody who's not that, who is not an easygoing white bloke, you don't get a voice. You're slammed for being opinionated, for being fired up, for caring, and that kind of thing. And this is not, I'm not saying... I'm not using the word cancelled because, of course, <laughs> I refuse to be cancelled. But you certainly have the dial turned down on you. 
you know? So, I mean, aren't there a couple of parallel Australias that we're talking about here? There's a, mm. there's leg- let's call it legacy Australia, which yep. is, I think, what you're talking about, which is you look at Parliament and <laughs> you largely see uh, flaccid old grey men in suits uh, general, as a general rule. Yeah. Uh, you look at boardrooms. You went and you to see, law school. Mm-hmm, and the same law schools and probably yeah. the same private We're schools. We're in the largely. same debating gro- clubs. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joined la- young Labor, young Liberals. Exactly. Yeah. And and certainly boardrooms are still comprised of those those people. But the elite opinion, I mean, the 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 culture that's getting made, the, you know, shows they're getting green lit. I mean, the the conversations that are had on the public broadcaster and in, you know, op-ed columns and so on. And the number of people who are graduating from university degrees, I mean, women far outstrip uh, boys at the Absolutely. moment in school. They far outstrip men in professions like medic- medical fields and, and so on. Men still dominate a little bit in some STEM, but, you know, you can get it, you can go down a whole rabbit hole about why that is and whether there are interest, differences in interests between males and females that, uh, that tend to encourage women to go into service industries and men to go into widget manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't I don't get the impression that that people's voices are being de-elevated. I mean, I get the impression that a lot of people's voices are being elevated by virtue of the fact that they can claim a tribal identity membership at the moment. I mean, if I am going for some kind of a promotion in the media, then I'm leaning into the fact that I'm married to a guy and I'm leaning into the fact that I'm a son of refugees I'm not leaning into the fact that I'm a white male. It's an absolute liability. Yeah, but you know what I'd argue there, just to to touch on those two factors, being gay and and maybe, you know, having to have had to have pulled yourself by your bootstraps, that still plays into a little of that sort of frontier colonial mindset that, you know, well, you made something of yourself. Look at you. So you still fit into the rule book in Australia. Well, I don't think the refugee thing is about the bootstraps. I think the refugee thing is is being part of the fabric of a multicultural society. Yeah, we've co-opted the multicultural story yeah. into that sort of frontier man, larrikin kind of thing, so long as you're a certain type of um, immigrant. You know, that's that's the thing. I mean... Are you saying that if I was exactly as competent as I am, but I was a woman of colour, and pick your woman of colour who is the least fashionable in your worldview, right? I mm. mean, so so if the refugee, if the gay refugee has a certain cachet because they can fit into the new stereotype of the, the, the straight, grey, flaccid old man in the suit, then let's say, is it an African woman? I mean, is yeah, it Yeah, let's a, go with that. Let's go with an African woman. I'm exactly as articulate as I, uh, as I am and exactly as... as accomplished and competent as I am. And then we also have to have this whole other discussion about like, well, it's obviously much harder to be as accomplished and as educated and so on as I am because I was born to privilege and presumably the African-Australian woman isn't. But holding all of those things equal, are you saying that the African-Australian woman who has exactly the same characteristics as me is at a disadvantage in 2022. Yet to this extent. I'm not really talking about advantage or disadvantage. I'm talking more about the impact on Australian society where we still funnel whatever our storyline might be into the you butte, she'll be right, take it easy, be easy going, don't rock boats, don't present any drama kind of mindset. And that's the thing that I worry about. Now, if this African woman was fired up and opinionated and um, had things to say that were a little against the grain, that's the point where there's probably disadvantage and you 
either turn the dial down and become, you know, sort of like a morning TV host where you just guffaw at everything, right, to get your point across. And really, that is very difficult if you're talking about something serious. Or you do have to become that strident, outspoken person that, yeah, sure, you might get a few gigs on Q&A, like you get brought on because you can actually fire things up in a certain direction. But it's very hard to actually have a broad-based conversation. Well, it depends is my how, point. how thoughtful and articulate you're being in your outspokenness, right? I mean, Correct. If, if I was aggressive true, and but- outspoken and doctrinaire and not particularly smart but very loud, then I could either be one of those grey-white flaccid blokes who has a big microphone, an Andrew Bolt or an Alan Jones or something like that, who that's their shtick. But yeah. I wouldn't. I don't regard those people as being the centre of gravity of popular culture. I mean, those people to me... They're the centre are... of gravity to the extent that they, they drag things down to a lowest common denominator. And that's the point that I'm making. I'm not sort of yeah, having this discussion... Yeah, but at... I mean, you know, well, no. they're, they're not, they don't get invited to the cocktail parties. They're not, I mean, they're you kind reckon? of... Have you, you know, been to W Wharf on a Friday <laughs> afternoon? They're all having lunch there. They're getting yeah. all the invites yeah, there. Trust me. They're paying. They're paying their way. I mean, they're not getting. They're, they're, they are not part of the cool club at the moment. The cool club is the Mark Fennells of the world and the people who are doing interesting work on SBS and like who are you know the people who are winning awards and who get accolades are people who are telling stories of diversity, telling stories of equity, telling stories of inclusion, yeah. who are perceived as being part of the new frontier. I mean, and that. Is I a love good, Mark is generally Fennell, a good thing. and he's winning awards. SBS adore it. You and I love it, and probably our mothers. And you know, the audience isn't mass. And I think this is the thing. I think, I think the mass of Australia is still caught up in this jocular. And I'll give you an example. The, the generalisations that I'm making here, and we're making generalisations to make a broader point. I don't think you can actually counter it with examples that you generally pull out for some of these other type of woke generalisations or you know, countercultural kind of arguments that are bandied about at the moment, because you know why? We're talking about class here and we're not talking about the usual binaries. Um, class is really interesting. And like I said, Lech Blaine in, in his various essays that he's done for the monthly and for the quarterly actually talks about this in quite a lot of interesting detail. We don't discuss class. And the fact that we don't discuss class means that if you do pop your head up and you didn't go to the private school and you did have disadvantage growing up and all that kind of thing, you're kind of levelled out. It's like there's this levelling out, you know, the tall poppy syndrome. You cut all the tall poppies off and we've all got to shrink to a particular size. And that can work really, really well if you're already at that size, you know, and if you're just below it. And so that egalitarian kind of thing did service for a very long time. But I think now it's holding us back. And I'll use an example that I don't say is representative of all of Australia, but I think it's an interesting one. I've been on dating apps for 15 years. That's how long I've been single for. So that's what happens when you're an opinionated female. In the dating realm, I think it's a quite an interesting contrast. I travel the world and I go on dating apps around the world. And I'm also on one of those really wanky um, sort of influencer ones. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you know I'll about just, this one? Yeah, you'll have to send me an invitation to it. I don't think I'm cool enough. I, I mean, I'm also, be single I'm also hitched. But <laughs> I'd like to just spy on it. Well, you can actually say um, here just for friends. I can actually run a sociological study by just observing bios, men's bios from around the world. And in Australia, I would say, without exaggerating, because I've, I've really looked at this closely, 90% of Australian men somewhere in their bio have phraseology to the effect of, we'll get on if you're no drama. We'll get on if you're laid back and something, 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 mm. spicy margaritas. And it's just all about having fun. <laughs> something, 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 spicy margaritas. Can that be the title of your next book? 
Yeah, it had something, to be something, something, something spicy it? margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'd be actually quite a good way to sum up this this whole realm. You go overseas though, and wherever I go in the world, the men, by and large, I'd say it flips the other way. By and large, they're looking for deep conversation. They ask what book you've read and so on and so forth. There's this massive contrast Mm. and, you know, I have a bit of fun with it on one of the sites. There was a guy called Tristan for a while who who connected with me but he was like doing the full double shuckers. He had the boutique beer on a yacht and he was out having a lot of fun time in pastel, a lot of pastel shorts. He was like, we'll get along if you don't take life too seriously, spelt T-O seriously. And so I had a bit of fun with him where I said, hey, Tristan, we have a problem here. We've connected, but I take life very seriously. What are we going to do? You know, and he sort of came backwards and forwards and, oh, well, you know, if you're you're easy going, don't give me any grief. You know, it's all that kind of thing. I think that's actually really symptomatic. And, yeah, no, and, I think and it's maybe fascinating. I can only extrapolate I, theories about dating and no, relationships. No, I mean, I think this is really interesting broad, because I think you're teasing out. I think you're getting to. I think you've compressed a few things, and I think the dating example is a good way of unteasing, of unraveling some of those things. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that there is an Australian strain of anti-intellectualism, mm-hmm. of anti-elitism, and frankly, of a reverence for mediocrity that we are proud of in a way that other other cultures aren't. Yeah. We've got a bit of a, we're the Western democracy that's lost on the other side of the world from everybody else. So while you all have your, you know, your fancy, fancy pants, while you're putting on airs in Europe and while you're ruling the world in America, we're going to be down here, you know, on our yacht drinking glasses of shardy. Being quite Australians. Being, yeah, exactly. That's with right. No opinions. No. Or, or Well, with very loud opinions about, but very little knowledge. About real estate. Yeah, about real estate, about, you know, what's so about sport. Yes. Uh, and, and so there's that. There is definitely that. And that's why a lot of Australians for many generations have gone to Europe and the United States the if they're ambitious. The 60s and 70s saw a mass exodus of people who, and I think it happens at times in fl- of flux, you know, where Australia and the rest of the world are having to adjust to d- different economic times, different sexual times. And As- so that, and the, the, but just to finish that thought mm. about that thing, I don't think that's identical to privilege and identity. No. I so think I, there, it, we've got to piece apart in a slightly different way. It's a cultural cringe and it kind of infiltrates at all different levels. But I would say that if, you're a, if you tick a number of different boxes, and in my case I'm going to tick older woman. Um, you're not an older woman. Yeah, well, you know, in the dating realm I am. Who's not easygoing and has got opinions and all of that kind of thing. It's the got opinions bit. And then other generalisations are used but do you, to bring but just you down. To, just, to, just to give the benefit of the doubt, I'm always about sort of steel-manning my opponent's arguments mm, and trying to I figure like out what the, you know, what the most generous interpretation of my adversary is rather than the least generous. When a person on a dating app says no dramas, are you sure that they mean I don't want you to have a brain or are you sure that they don't? mean and they they may mean both they don't they don't mean i don't want someone who's going to be highly self-entitled and is always going to want me to be perfect in every way while she basically uses me for my money slash Braun. status yeah i don't think it's either of those things i would say that there are a lot of men who would actually like when it comes down to it the men who are in relationships they're the men who actually do sign up for the commitment the work that goes with it the hard times the wrestle you know, that's what brings humanity joy is the hard times, right? It's the, it's 
you know, I always describe it like, you know, you can't be a high jumper unless you've got sort of traction, a difficult surface to, to ricochet off. And, you know, every spiritual teaching works to this effect. You have to have sacrifice in order to then enjoy the bounties. And we've lost that dialogue. And I would say that these men, I would say that when it comes down to it, they're actually looking for drama. Yeah, they're looking right. for the wrestle. Um, but it's the cultural cringe. It's the dominant way of discussing things. And it's sort of a bit like the flat guy on the couch who's got all sort of flaccid and everything. I don't think he really wants to live life out that way. And I and I sort of use, the ex, you know, the example of that Christmas Day, you know, when you've eaten too much mm, and then mm. your sort of sister-in-law suggests going for a walk and it's just like... It's too much. It's too much. I mean, I... But we would I, like I, the vibrancy of a walk deep look, down. I, yes, I take that critique and that's the critique. That's why Australia calls itself the lucky country. I mean, the lucky country was coined not as a compliment to Australia no. but as a criticism of for pre- precisely the reasons. Mm that you're saying, that we, we're lucky and fat and content because we can dig everything out of the ground and, or shear it off a sheep's back and therefore we haven't had to work. Nonetheless, I do think that there's something worthy, worthy of respect and admiration in the, in the way that the country has dealt with itself since, say, the 1980s, that you could have had a, a sort of a doubling down, well, I should probably say since the 70s, you could have had a doubling down of Menzies, of the Menzies era. You could have had, and to some extent, the the Howard years were perhaps that. You could have had a, a turning away from multiculturalism. You could have had a And a, the Abbott closed, years could have been that. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but there are, each of one is everywhere. offset by, you know, you can offset Howard with, uh, with Hawke and Keating and you can offset Abbott with Gillard and, and Rudd. In comparison to other Western countries, in comparison to an ideal, Australia falls far short. In comparison to other actual existing countries. We've done, you know, more than half of us have arrived since the Second World War. We are highly multicultural. We get on very well with each other. We're we're strikingly absent of cultural strife between rival factions and groups. We're highly prosperous, not just from mining and agriculture. We do have a lot of innovation. We do have good tech companies. We're great in the creative arts. We win a swag of Academy Awards. I disagree with you on that. We used to. We used to. But what about Hugh Jackman? Our Hugh. When was the last time he was still going? He's still going. He's got his Viper hands on. He's got his vampire teeth on. I would argue. Whatever he's doing in those X Men films is fabulous. I would argue the 90s was the last time we had a real heyday in and around music, creativity. And the stats play out. Australia has become one of the most um, uninnovative countries in the world. And I can't cite the exact. By what measure? We'll we'll put it. Get it and you can put it in the show notes. I'll have right. to dig out the actual reference it. to that. But no, there are the lots of countries opulent... that don't have an Atlassian, which is this tech co- big tech company. What, there are a lot of countries of that don't have a... <laughs> well, how many do you want? <laughs> three? <laughs> You're gonna... Come on, give well, me you three. Couldn't even give me one. You couldn't even give me your one counterexample. You're going to have to look it up later and put it in the show notes. Well, it's, it's a study and I would prefer to have the exact details of it. But I do cite it um, a number of times. I, it's just escaped my memory now. We'll have it in the show notes. But like but... what, we're less innovative than Turkey, Belgium? Oh. Oh, I'd have to have a look. We've become Mongolia. one of, and I suspect it's a comparable study with comparable OECD countries because it's comparing opulence and economic growth and showing that the more opulent a country becomes, the less innovative it, it becomes. And that's essentially where we've we, we've wound up. But the United States has a higher GDP than almost any other Western country and they have a lot of innovation. Yeah, but they've also had tough times. They went through the, the GFC big time. 2008 actually triggered incredible innovation. So, And that happened in Europe as well. There's all kinds of machinations happening. But 
just to go back to your um, steel manning of me, I want to play into that a little. What I will say is that one thing that has come out of it, just doing a full circle back to where we almost started, we have a really good dickhead threshold. And so what we can say that's happened in recent times, a lot of governments around the world, as the world gets more uncertain and wobbly and unpredictable and fragmented, they've gone a lot more authoritarian and there's a lot of dictators sprouting up. Look what's happening in the US. We don't know what's going to happen there, but you know, you talk to it a lot on your various podcasts and radio shows. In Australia, obviously over in the UK as well, you know, Boris Johnson managed to get away with stuff and the Tories are still in. They still haven't really suffered from their behaviour. What's happened here, though, is I actually think that we have a really healthy dickhead threshold. You call it the pub test. Yeah. You know, Scott Morrison's terrible antics, he's lying, he's bullying, all of that behaviour that's circulating at the moment in the face of unrest, fragmentation, disorientation, overwhelm, all the hyper objects that are coming at us. Australia actually drew a line. And what I would say is that is one positive that comes out of what I'm talking about here, that egalitarian sort of, you know... Yeah, don't get too big for your boots. Exactly. And therefore... It produces a good dickhead yeah, threshold. There is there are upsides and downsides to cynicism. Yes. That's sort of what we're talking about, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm fleshing out one aspect of it. And, and look, you know, was it F. Scott Fitzgerald who said, you know, the sign of intelligence is being able to hold two opposing ideas, mm, you know? Mm. And I think that's what we've got to get better at. I mean, I think I agree with much of that. and the, and But also your point about class is something that is so under-talked about in totally. Australia and so under-talked we're about... We're not allowed I mean, to go there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I regard myself as broadly being on the left and I will get hounded by, you know, Murdoch hacks who say that an ABC journalist is admitting to being on the left. I'm not talking about who I vote for in a partisan political way. I'm talking about not bullshitting everybody by pretending that what is obvious to everyone isn't true, which is that I and many people in my cohort have general sympathies towards ideals of of progress, of cultural progress and and Mm. cultural evolution and ideals of equity and egalitarianism uh, and that we are not of the class that is jealously guarding the interests of the elite. There is something like rambunctiously contrarian about me and my fellow journos who I like and admire, not all of them, but the, the, you know, the, the group of people who I regard as being my peeps are people who are not all about defending the interests of people yeah. who don't need defending. It's more about like what is interesting about people who don't who, you know, who don't necessarily otherwise have a voice. And so with all of that throat clearing aside, it does worry me that the at least the online left 
seems much less interested in inequality and class than it has traditionally. Been, it's been very distracted, I think, by a whole heap of other stuff. Yeah. Distracted or misguided? Basically same, what has same, happened in really. the past generation is instead of instead of caring about poor people, we've started caring very vocally about minority rights and civil rights. And those have almost completely subsumed the conversation about who is well off and who is not well off. So it's almost taboo to say what I'm about to say. But, you know, you can be a member of a historically marginalised community who is not in 2022 actually as disadvantaged as a member of a non-historically marginalised community that may be a working class white straight man who is struggling in an economy that is not serving them. But that narrative is kind of steamrolled out of existence. All the narratives by... are really switching around. There's so many um, transitions going on. And what I would also argue is that we often refer to what's happening in the US in particular to lead discussions on these topics, and they don't always apply here. No. And it's really interesting the way that, say, for instance, the Liberal Party in the most recent election have really tried to co-opt well, the everyday man. I mean, Scott Morrison is the total example of this. He went to a private school in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, you know, grew up in churchy groups, very, very comfortable, but of course got into power and his popularity built off the back of his ability to sell in this idea that he's a Sharky's supporter, that he confected the whole ScoMo, you know, sort of thing, and totally played into the larrikin sort of underdog, you know, the quiet Australian thing that he, Mm. you know, obviously continued on from, you know, the success that John Howard had from taking that approach. Whereas the Labor Party, which has always been the party for the lower classes, sort of had to move up to their upper echelons. And for actually the last 20, 30 years, it's been accused of being elitist. Yeah. I mean, it's a real shift, isn't it, the way that... Totally. And I mean, this is is happening in the States as well, and it's happening in Western Europe, and it's also happening here where... I mean, it's no surprise that if you if you were the party of the working people and then you became the party of punishing people who use the wrong transgender pronoun, that the working people are not going to be quite as excited about voting for you as yeah. they used to be when you were their champion. Like you're voting for a representative who is going to represent you. And if the right is, is ceasing to be the private school in-club group and is at least trying to present itself as being the populist, you know, defender of the working every person. Man, the yeah, the every man, exactly, mm-hmm. against a university-educated elite that's trying to take over your culture and yeah. teach your kids crazy things about gender and whatever, then it is understandable. I don't have a lot of sympathy for, uh, you know, conservative cultural beliefs, but I do have a lot of sympathy for the idea of living in a society that is capacious enough to allow those beliefs to exist without persecuting the people who express them. And Which beliefs? Which, which ones are you well, specifically referring to? I mean, beliefs that conservatives think that they're uh, not allowed to talk about. So it might be, okay. uh, it might be, well, women use sex, women use their sexuality in the workplace to get ahead as well. It's not just a one-way street where men are abuse, abusive towards right. women or harass women. Yeah. Like this is an interplay between powerful men and women who use their their looks. Right? That would be a, a thing that conservatives think that you're not allowed to say in the context of the Me Too movement. Or it might be First Nations civilization wasn't completely fine and dandy before 1788. There were lots of Things that were barbaric about that as well, but people feel like you're not allowed to say that without seeming like you're on the wrong side of well, history. We're, we're veering into be... cancel culture stuff there, which yeah, I always basically. find really interesting. And I always find it interesting when people with power complain of being 
cancelled. I mean, my theory, we're going to segue here, but my theory on cancel culture, it's I've got two. The first is, I think, again, a lot of our dialogue and debate comes from the US. And so we kind of... Um, we kind of leapfrogged over the really intense problems that emerged from t- from overwokeism. I don't think there was ever a moment here where there was overwokeism, where wokeness just was so pervasive that everyone was going enough, right? What we've gone to is the shock jocks getting fully like into cancel language. You know, like they've they've kind of co-opted it, the outrage from the US and decided that they're just going to go, I am cancelled and all of this. But it doesn't have the basis, you know, for the outrage. I don't think it has actually fomented here in the same way. The second thing I was going to say is there's two sort of demographics that get very vocal. I mean, I think you're a bit younger than me, but we're of roughly the same generation. Gen Xs don't get that worked up about wokeness and cancel culture it's just not something we're talking about. We're observing it and we've got to comment on it because we're in positions where that's what we do. But it's boomers and it's it's millennials and Gen Zers. And what I find interesting is they're two demographics that grew up in eras of, once again, if we can go back to my grand meta theory here, of opulence and comfort and sort of being told, you know, that, well, you get, you know, righteous um, when something doesn't go your way and if something's uncomfortable and you go and sort it out, you know. I find it quite interesting yeah, that they're the I two mean, that demographics that speak the language. We don't. I don't hear... Well, we don't... How much of the how much of the us not talking about it or not being bothered by it is a natural state of being and how much of it is a consequence of the fact that the penalties for saying some of the things that I was just pointing to earlier are quite high so people yeah, just tiptoe around. Yeah, that applies to peep boomers and zoomers. Like that that applies to both. Um, I mean, perhaps they're just don't care about consequences well, as Zoomers, much as we do. But Zoomers care about it for the, from, for the other reason, don't they? I mean, Zoomers care about it from the other direction in the sense that they, they're they the ones doing the cancelling. Well, yes, but then they're also the most vocal about being cancelled. I just That's another theory. Often the, the cancellers that are bleating, I'm being cancelled. Like I see, two, I see, they're, yes. They're, they're, they're sort of yeah, well, they're victims on every front, aren't yeah, they? I mean, they're, victim, they're, they're victims of, uh, of, of society at large. They're victims of misogyny. They're victims of the patriarchy. They're victims of racism. And they're also victims of their own self-cancellation. Um, I mean, what's interesting here, though, I think, just to close the the chapter on the class thing, or mm. maybe link it to what yes. we're talking about here, Sarah, is that this whole rhetoric of the cancel culture of the woke kind of cancel culture person, right? This this person who who doesn't just think that you're a differently opinioned, you know, that you have a different opinion. If, for example, you think that gay people shouldn't be able to get married, but that that opinion is so hate filled that it shouldn't be permitted in the public square, that we should dramatically curtail the the scope of what we're allowed to talk about because we are decreeing in advance that certain things are hate speech. This is the snowflake, you know, the yeah. the Gen Z snowflake perspective. That perspective is a very university educated and quite white perspective. Yes. It purports to be, well, I wouldn't even call it smaller liberal because that would be, I mean, I think of that as being like a classical liberal sort of free speech uh, orientation, a more libertarian orientation. Yeah, okay. But The contemporary take on it though. I mean, that's Yeah, they're all progressives or or something. Yeah, Yeah, but they're not even progressive either. So what do you call them? I mean, the the regressive left, some people 
yeah. <laughs> call them, right? Yeah. They're sort of actually regressive leftists. I mean, this is not a new thing to the left. We think of the left as being all lovey-dovey and free speech. And since the 60s, for between the 60s and the 90s it was, but Stalin wasn't very free speechy. Like, you know, no. like the, the left historically has not been a champion of free speech, uh, particularly. It hasn't really been bothered by it. It's been bothered more by the inequality that I've just said is, right. has been leeching out of the left's conversations. But I would just say that current fad or, you know, the current hyper-obsession with making sure that we we say precisely the right things about First Nations Australians, about people of colour, you don't... You would, Never call them coloured people, as some people have have been cancelled for saying. Yeah. But like this, that's just because you're an old person. You didn't you heard people of colour and mm. then you misremembered it. But now all of a sudden you're evil or you're a demon or whatever. You know whatever J.K. Rowling is saying about transgender people or something. The huge crises that take place online about these things present themselves as being in defence of the disenfranchised and the historically marginalised. What they actually are are status games between university educated, mostly yes. white people. Yes, and you're picking up on I think an interview I did with Rob Henderson uh, on my podcast. This is something that he's drawn out in a really interesting way and it sort of crosses or, you know, sort of intersects everything we've spoken about so far. You know, where we used to sort of, the rich used to signify their distinction from the rest of us and justification for their absolute wealth through expensive handbags and expensive cars and gated communities and all of that, which said that you had taste and you also just had the languidness. And he also refers to the era before that, before sort of consumption took over. It was actually displaying how you could afford to do ridiculous activities, whether it be golf or, I don't know, shooting animals and wearing ridiculous outfits that were really inconvenient. The rich have always worn outfits that are not very practical and are actually deeply uncomfortable. So he was sort of saying that we've always had things that signal status to the world and says, I'm different from you and I'm actually better than you. Today, he says, it's actually woke beliefs, as you say, from these elite universities, particularly in the US. And, you know, when you are actually able to sort of say, I believe in defund the police, it actually signals this, I suppose, ability to do the research and to read particular kinds of journals and follow particular people on various substacks where you know that language. And that signifies to the world that you are different from everybody else, the hoi polloi. But the problem is, like all luxury beliefs or status symbols, they tend to sort of trickle down through the classes. So the elite, rich, live them out, speak them out, wear the handbag, whatever it might be. And then you have the Hermes ripoffs, you know, or, yeah. you, or you have the middle class person saving up three months worth of their salary to buy the Hermes handbag, right? And then you have the ripoffs, you know, and they trickle down and become ubiquitous and then their value is lost. He says the same happens with woke beliefs. They trickle down, but when they trickle down, they cause incredible damage. So when you have, say, let's take the example of defund the police. He's American, so it makes a bit more sense over there. When you have poor black communities buying into that woke speech, that sort of motif, it's actually really problematic. Well, they don't. They don't tend to actually. Well, Wokeness he says is they not very... do eventually. It becomes. He said he uses that example in particular, that there were impoverished black communities who were starting to speak this speak. But when it comes down to it, when you actually investigate the 
impact of defunding the police on these communities, they're going to be at a huge disadvantage. This mm. is his argument. Right. Because the rich have security guards and they get to live in of suburbs course. where of they don't have a huge there amount of crime. There isn't much crime there anyway. And they yeah. don't need, you need the police the, you need the police is, yeah, where yeah. poor people are. But, I mean, what's interesting is that when you actually do talk to, I mean, uh, you know, look at the marriage equality referendum in Australia, the plebiscite. Journalists all had to sort of pretend to be shocked that the no vote against gay marriage was heavily concentrated in the western suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne uh, because apparently the only people who are bigoted are supposed to be white males. You know, these are migrant-heavy communities. Yeah. Uh, these are people who are not woke. They're not woke. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. the, the Chinese Australians are conservative. Uh, Muslim and Arab Australians are conservative by the standards of the rest of the country. They're more they're more culturally conservative than the mean. For fair and, reason as well. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not having a go at them no. at all. I'm just saying, like, let's just let's just call a spade a spade and just be legit, be fair income about it. And this, in the same way, in the states, you ask people, you know, from you ask people of color in in high crime black communities whether or not they want to defund the police. They're like, what are you talking about? What are you crazy? Yeah. You want more police you know, doing, who are behaving better, who are better resourced, who are more conciliatory, less abusive, ideally less racist. You yeah, know, but we don't want to defund them. Defund them is some crazy white man, you know, yeah, talk from the university. Solution from above. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look, it's such interesting times. And I think people feel really overwhelmed by it. And then what happens when we're overwhelmed? We want to sort of go into binary mode. And that's the thing we've just got to resist over and over again, is we've actually got to have a dialogue around enjoying these kinds of debates, which mm. brings me back to mm. the intellectualism issue I have in Australia, is that we're not going to get anywhere unless we allow nebulous, free-ranging, multi-dimensional debate, which includes class. I just want to pick up on something that I meant to bring up earlier. We've brought up private schools a little and, you know, in a country that calls itself egalitarian and, you know, a fair go for everyone, you know, no kid's going to be left behind, you know, all that kind of rhetoric. I mean, your listeners would know this probably, but Australia has the biggest gap in funding between private schools and public schools. Public schools in Australia are the most underfunded in comparison to private schools, schools in the world. You know, that is shameful. And we send public money to private schools. That's, That's the right. crazy thing. We spend almost as much, I believe, on private schools as we do on public schools. It's a little bit nuanced than that. Federal government, I might have this the wrong way around, and I always get the it wrong. The feds pay for private. That's the it. state pay for public. So states pay more for public than they do private and then it's switched around at a federal level for reasons I don't really understand. Well, because the states have responsibility for education, so they pay for the public education, but then there's this funny system where the federal government wants to... They pay more to private to, school kids. Well, the feds do, but not the not the, public, not, but not the states. But that theory doesn't stack up if their aim is to give, you know, every kid equal amounts of money for That's education. That's the Department of Education's aim. It's not the federal government's aim. The, oh. federal, the federal government doesn't have responsibility for education per se. They just have responsibility for, I don't know. The point whatever, is raining, there's a massive raining gap cash. and the gap is getting bigger. Yeah. And yeah. thank No, it's it's criminal. It's crazy. All like the if you want to send, if you say- exit the public education system and send your kids to private school, pay God bless. It. Go for it and pay for it. Like yeah. that's why you get money from that's right. And, and you know, people say, well, and then what the government should be doing is investing in more schools, teachers getting paid more so that there are more public schools available and more choice. I mean, you know, that's what parents use as their excuse. Mm. There's no decent public school in my area. And it's often the case, I suppose, in fact, right to the extent that there's actually no places, there's actually not a physical building, there's not a school that they can send their child to. That's the problem we should be actually addressing. 
Sarah, the other thing that I wanted to discuss with you is effective altruism. Yep. If we're talking about egalitarianism and we're talking about what rich people should be doing with their money rather than <laughs> making it rain on their children's, uh, you know, kayaking and rowing uh, championships. In state-of-the-art facilities. Uh, yeah. If the, what is the effective altruism movement and how did you get interested in it? Funny I should answer that because you've also interviewed Peter Singer um, on your podcast. Uh, look, I got into it before it was even a thing, Josh. Oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> she one-ups me. Well, I was doing it before I realised, you know, there was a word that you could put to it. I used to own a business. I started off in all of this and, and sit here before you because I wrote a book called I Quit Sugar and it did particularly well around the world and it made a fair bit of money. I employed 26 staff, built up a tech platform, converted millions of people to not eating sugar, et cetera, et cetera. Did very well. And I set aside the money and I eventually, I closed everything down three years ago. It was actually a bit longer than that now. The final closure was three years ago. Five years ago was when the real thing happened. I closed everything down and sold off all the assets and gave everything to charity. And so it was a commitment that I made for a whole bunch of reasons. And go read one of my books, I think it's in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, I explain what led to it. It was a, a suicide attempt that then turned into deciding, choosing to live. And if I was going to live, I was going to do it by my own rules. And I was not going to get sucked in ever again to the capitalist cycle. And so to do that, then sort of built this business, this kind of movement, got an accountant. He said, what are your financial goals? I said, I don't do them. He forced me to, he had a whiteboard ready to go. He, he needed something on his whiteboard. Mm, mm. And I said, well, he said, what about in five years? What's your goal? And I said, all right, I want to have made enough money to live until I'm 94, CPI'd, and on the base wage. And then once I've reached that point, once I've set myself up, because I've also got an autoimmune disease, which means I just don't know, particularly back then, I didn't know how long I'd be able to work for. Well, so what happens when you get to 94 in one day? Oh, well, I'm hoping that I'll have nieces and nephews that'll just right. come and look after me. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I just want to, sure I want to make sure you're okay when you're 95. My usual backup plan is I'll go and do waitressing, but at 94 in one day, could be I don't a, think so. Yeah, might struggle yeah. there. If you need, if you get to 95, you know, and things aren't going so well, give me a call. All right. Give me a call. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm always happy to chip in. Yeah. Okay. That's good. good I'll clean know. your car. That's good. If, I don't think I'll have a car at 94. I still I don't have a car now. Why am I going to have one at 94? <laughs> anyway, so I made that commitment and so and I said, you know, anything I earn after that, I give away and I do work that's meaningful to me. So we hit that goal within a week of that five-year time frame. And so my accountant, Harry, rang and went, what do we do? And I said, we sell it. We sell up. So we spent a year trying to sell it to various companies and I got tire kicked by, you know, the big agencies and media companies and they wanted me to stay in the business. I'm like, no, that's not the deal. I'm moving on. Right. I've, got, I've got other things to do. Yeah. And the climate crisis was calling me, you know. I did sell it all off eventually. It took a little longer than I thought. And so I give that money now in chunks every six months to projects where I reach out to my community. I educate them on a particular charity. It generally has a win-win-win, at least three wins to it, like where you put this money in and it does this, this and this and has this multiplying effect. And then I match it dollar for dollar. So it's kind of like a joint venture thing and it becomes, a, it gets a momentum to it and it's fun. So I do that. And then of course, I started reading about the effective altruism stuff, Will McCaskill and, you know, the 80,000 hours and Peter Singer's work and realised, wow, this is really cool. And of course, what's his name? Sam Friedman Banks or Banks Friedman? Yeah, Have I got Friedman Banks, I think. Yeah. The work that he's doing, it's very academic and it's a little bit bro-y, you know, the podcasting bro crew. Totally. And, and it's a little bit utilitarian. And right, as a philosophy, right. I have 
issues with utilitarianism. I think it's a little bit blunt. Mm-hmm. It's a blunt in- instrument. However, I think in current times, as a way to show something in contrast to the way we're living at the moment, it's quite effective. So I think Will McCaskill and Peter Singer would say that, that it is a movement. It's not just a theory. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You, you I mean, especially into, Will. There's big conferences and I've actually got a little bit of intel on the community. It gets a little bit guru-y and a bit culty, I think, in in some aspects, there's conferences. How so? I don't think I'm speaking our term because I think it's quite well known. Polyamory is really big, not necessarily as, hey, we're open to, you know, it's a thing. In the effective altruism movement specifically. Yeah, I think it pops up in a bunch of full-on, you know, movements which are about breaking down systems. Yeah, right. I you- guess if you're, if you're keenly interested mm. in... Re- in revolutionising the way that we think about our morality, then maybe you're open to other avenues systems. in which that takes place. Because yeah. a lot of the theories behind effective altruism are based on sort of, you know, it's linked in with the donut economics movement and all of that kind of thing. Have you read Will McCaskill's latest book, by the way? Yes. He's got a book about I, yeah, I interviewed him on my podcast, risks. yeah, on long-termism. It is just so eye-opening, isn't it? I mean, I was just, yeah. it's so thought-provoking and, yeah, I want to figure out how to how exactly to explore that. But it is a moral revolution, I think, to, to imagine the fact that the number of human beings who have existed up until now is a vanishingly small fraction of, of the number who yeah. may ultimately exist and therefore our number one priority ethically should be making life as feasible, well, possible and flourishing as for, possible for, for future mm. yeah, for future generations. It's amazing. I went and visited him in Oxford. Did like a pilgrimage to Oxford just to see well? Yeah. Wow. But he's got this setup where he's got multiple institutes and I've forgotten all the names. It's like I think one's called the Institution for Future Risk or for Future Priorities. Yes, right. And the other one's um, on for, the Forethought Institute or something like that. But they are all working together to actually work out what do we prioritise amidst the clusterfuck of existential threats. And Mm. of course, he works closely with Toby Ord, who's the big existential risk guy. I think his book's called The Precipice, where he he writes about this. So there's (laughs) the various ways that we might kill ourselves off. Yeah. And how do you think about, I mean, what I find interesting about effective altruism is the change in the norms about conversing about altruism and charity. The, the the shift from this old-fashioned idea that one doesn't really broadcast one's good deeds to the idea that actually if we're going to have a moral revolution, then we're going to need to start talking about it. And we're going to yeah, need Peter to start... Yeah, Peter Singer talks about that. Yeah, that's he? right. And mm. Sam Harris makes, the, makes that point as well, that it's worth being out. It's, it's almost a coming out of the closet type thing Show in terms way. of charity. Sarah, lovely to talk to you. you Let's too. talk again. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.